Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <music> Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch, the host of the channel. Um, I just finished having a really interesting interview with uh, Dr. Edward Andrews on his new book, Native Apostles, Black and Indian Missionaries in the British Atlantic World. Uh, This is a book looking mostly at the uh, use by Protestant missionaries in Africa and in North America of both uh, Native Americans and uh, people of African descent as preachers, as missionaries uh, to their respective peoples. Um, And it's really a fascinating book. Uh, Dr. Edwards has really a skill at finding um, really interesting anecdotes and in drawing together a lot of very different material and really fusing it together into a uh, compelling narrative. In particular, what I like is the fact that he is taking these two different people we may think of as two different groups of people, right? Uh, Native Americans and people of African descent, and explaining how they actually go together, not just in conceptual terms, but also by the very fact that they were working with each other, in a sense, and talking to each other. And um, so I found this just a really interesting book. If you're interested in missionaries and history of Christianity, in the culture of people of African descent or Native Americans, uh, I think you'll get a lot out of this. Um, So, uh, I hope you will enjoy it. And now on to the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Edward Andrews about his new book, Native Apostles, Black and Indian Missionaries in the British Atlantic World. Uh, Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I wonder, as as our tradition is on new books, um, could you tell me a little bit about yourself to begin our interview? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I am a um, uh, a New Hampshire a, a New Hampshireite kind of uh, through and through. I grew up in New Hampshire, um, and I think that's probably probably where I got my um, my my interest in Native American history. I grew up in a, a town called Laconia, and in a specific section called Weir's Beach, which is on Lake Winnipesaukee, right in the middle of um, um, right in the middle of New Hampshire, and uh, and there was a uh, you know, we did a lot of outdoor activities, hiking and, and outdoor walks and kayaking and things like that. And um, I think through that, I, I developed a real interest in kind of the native past uh, in the region around me. It was it was very much a kind of like amateurish interest uh, in the native past rather than a kind of like serious scholarly interest. And I even when I was in high school, I went to high school in Concord, New Hampshire, about 45 minutes away. I really wasn't that interested in history. But um, I went to uh, to Providence College, which is actually also where I work now, also where I teach. Um, I went to PC as a uh, as an undergraduate, and I got uh, much more interested in in history than I was uh, in high school, and ended up going on for a, uh, a master's at American University in Washington D.C. And then uh, I got my PhD at the University of New Hampshire uh, in Durham, um, and that's where I you know started to uh, kind of develop this project. And my interest in um, in uh, in you know in native missionaries. So, 
Oh, that's really fascinating um, to grow up in the area and also to, to keep to teach where you study. That must be. Do you work with any of the professors you took classes with? I, I do. Yeah, it, it was actually really it was it was very strange. I mean, now I've, I've kind of gotten over it. Um, so but it was very strange. I, I remember vividly like the first time that I saw um, one of my former professors in the hallway. Um, I, I kind of had to consciously call her by her first name and it was very hard for me to do, even though I was like, you know, 31 years old and I had my PhD and I was a colleague now, it was still kind of a challenge for me. And and every once in a while, I, I still kind of go back to that place, maybe a little bit mentally, but, um, but I've been there, I've been teaching there now longer, you know, this is my fifth year. So I've been there longer than, than, uh, than the time it took for me to graduate as a student there. So I have more of a tie to the school in, in, in that sense as an, as an employer than as a student there. So it's fun. You get to see, uh, you know, you get to see the institution from the inside out, which is kind of fun. <laughs> Were you able to read your secret file? <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, I wish, I wish there was a secret. No, actually I, it's funny because my, um, I, I teach in a team taught program with, with two other professors and, one of whom was my undeclared advisor, and the other one was a guy that I had in that same program. And uh, we were all joking because he said, you know, I don't really remember you, which probably means you weren't a very good student. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's accurate. I think I think in college I was like a B plus, A minus student. I was OK, but I wasn't like a, I wasn't an all star. I was definitely I was definitely a late bloomer. And I think um you know, I think I went to graduate school because I wanted to learn more about history. And when I got to American University, I studied under Andrew Lewis and Karen Wolf, uh, and I, I started to learn a lot more uh, about early American history and kind of really develop a passion for it. So it, it's it definitely took off on the on the later stage, um, but I was definitely not the uh, the the, the all star student that I uh, that I strive to have my own students be at Providence. You know? <laughs> Well, an all-star student or not, you wrote an all-star book. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit how you came to write this. Yeah. So um, uh, the um, it actually began it actually began at American University in a strange way um, as part of um, a class that I took with Karen Wolf. Um, Karen Wolf was uh, she she taught a course on. Of course, now she's the director of the Omohundro Institute for Early American History and Culture, and um, and but at the time she was at American University teaching a course on family, family and social life in early America. And the assignment was basically to get a primary source and look at a primary source in light of kind of family issues in, you know, in early America. And I found a, a 1774 census of Rhode Island and I focused specifically on Newport. My my family was from Rhode Island. I went to undergraduate school, as you know, uh, in Rhode Island. And so I had this kind of affinity for learning a little bit more about Rhode Island because I thought it was an interesting and strange New England colony, which I still think it is. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I wanted to learn a little bit more about it. But I, I started that started me on a, a dissertation project, which I started to develop at American University and then at, at the University of New Hampshire on slavery and race in Newport, Rhode Island. So I started to write, I actually wrote like three chapters uh, for that. I had the dissertation maybe like, you know, a third or halfway done. And then I came upon the subject of the sixth chapter in Native Apostles, which is a guy named John Kwame, or two guys, John Kwame and Bristol Yama. And I was just fascinated. I was absolutely hooked by their story. This is a story of um, two guys who had been um, African slaves, kind of pulled into the vortex of the transatlantic slave trade system. They ended up in, in Newport, Rhode Island, 
Uh, and they they take part in Sarah Osborne's kind of very well-known revival in the 1760s, which Catherine Breckis has written about recently in a, in a really great book, Sarah Osborne's World. Um, and then these guys, like they they buy a winning lottery ticket and they end up using that to like purchase their freedom and start to plan to go back to Africa, you know, as missionaries. And some of the ministers, you know, in town um, were completely on board with this. They raised a ton of money for it. They sent them down to the College of New Jersey, you know, to uh, to learn under John Witherspoon, who is this, you know, big time transatlantic religious figure, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, like a big, you know, a big name. Um, and I just was totally fascinated by this idea of Africans being trained to preach to Africans. Um because, you know, for me, the, the story of missionaries, as I understood, it was always the history of me. You know, missionaries were kind of white folks, you know, Euro Americans kind of going out and, and, you know, preaching the gospel and you know, preaching it to people maybe they didn't understand and having, you know, this kind of attitude of cultural imperialism and bringing all that baggage with them and stuff like that. And I just thought, you know, the story was really, really interesting and it can kind of complicate a lot of those dynamics by focusing on it. Um I'll say, too, that I actually I started to read a bit uh, in like 19th century British history, and I found that it was much more common. It was really common in, in British missions to use like African and and Indian, meaning Native uh, American, as well as subcontinental Asian uh, missionaries, missionaries in Asia. In fact, the vast majority of pre- people working in British missions uh, in the 19th century were actually, you know, not British so I just thought it was a really interesting story, and my I just began with a process of just trying to count just how many of these people were out there. That's why I had that appendix in the end, you know. Um, who are these people, and where are they, and how many are there? And that's kind of how I began that that process. And then when I started writing the book, I wanted to kind of unpack what it meant. But the beginning process was simply just to find out how widespread this phenomenon was because I was so intrigued by the story of John Kwame and Bristol Yama that I wanted to learn more about it. So I I scrapped the original dissertation. This became my dissertation at UNH, and then I revised it significantly, you know, for Harvard. Um, But uh, but I was happy, you know, I was happy with the end product. So, you know, it's I really enjoyed reading this book, especially because in my my own area, I I study Korean Catholicism where the the French and uh, missionaries were highly dependent on the Koreans to to do everything for them almost. I mean, the, the missionary's job was basically to perform the sacraments. Right. Um, and the, the, the Koreans did about everything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's I think what what's kind of what was kind of interesting about about this project, kind of thinking about what was going on with later Protestant missions, but also, like you were saying, kind of with Jesuits and with Catholics is that. You know, the traditional narrative for Catholics and especially the Jesuits in New France is that they tended to be kind of a lot more flexible with the use of indigenous peoples and with the use of indigenous cosmologies and things like that. And the narrative for early American history is that, well, you know, they didn't really the English slash British missionaries didn't really try all that much. I mean, they created some of these praying towns, which were, you know, not entirely successful and they weren't as flexible as the Jesuits. So they couldn't really kind of get into the hearts and minds of, of native peoples in, you know, in their region in the, in the Americas. And I just thought it was really interesting that, um, you know, that it was the English who were actually ordaining people. Even before the French are, you know, um, before the French Jesuits were, the English were ordaining ministers. So it it kind of 
it, it depicts them, I think, is maybe more flexible than we've than we've previously thought. They're still quite rigid. Um, but I think in that respect, in terms of the amount of power and authority they gave to these people, I think um, they're more flexible than I than we've the, we've traditionally acknowledged. Um, but the but yeah, the, I think you're absolutely right. I think the, um, the the connection with with other missionaries in, in Asia and elsewhere. I think the more you look into it, the more you realize how powerful the indigenous presence is. Before we started doing it a bit, but I wonder if you could then walk us a little through your your introduction. Yeah. Yeah. So in the introduction, what I'm, I, I essentially kind of map out what I had, you know, what I had said before about um, kind of the importance of studying native missionaries and thinking about native missionaries in light of larger cross-cultural contacts. I was, I've always been kind of interested in cultural contact and cultural encounters. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a religious scholar per se, or a scholar of religion or Christianity. I'm kind of a scholar of cultural encounters who studies religious peoples, um, but obviously there are, you know, obviously really strong religious dimensions here. So I kind of came came at it through the, the the lens or the prism of cultural encounter, and you know what I really wanted to do, I think, in the introduction was to map out the reasons why native missionaries would, for early modern Protestants, seem like a good idea, right? Um, even in a time of you know. Indian dispossession and the advent of, we see in the 18th century, the advent of kind of more crystallized ideas about racial science and transatlantic slave trade. And we see this kind of paternalism and all these other types of things like more crystallized racial ideas. I found it kind of paradoxical that at the same time that all that stuff is happening, they're still putting a tremendous amount of authority into the hands of native peoples. And I was, I basically used the introduction to kind of map out why. And there are a couple major reasons. I think the um, the first and obvious reason is kind of the language issue, right? Um, so, you know, you know that scholars of missions and, and missionaries talk about this process of translation, right? Meaning translating uh, a word, kind of literally, so you know what the words mean, but also just kind of more generally translating concepts. And you know, native peoples were particularly adept uh, at uh, at doing that, and so that was one reason why they relied on them. Um, the other major reason was kind of what, what I kind of called essentially peer pressure, right? Um, essentially kind of the idea that if, if one native person could convert, then maybe other native peoples would convert and then they would, con- you know, convert other peoples and, you know, so on and so forth. This is especially prevalent when we talk about um, Anglican attempts to try to convert Indian royalty. There's this, there's this idea that, you know, if you convert the king or if you get them kind of allied to your ideas or at least get them kind of talking in a Christian way or doing some kind of Christian practices, then maybe the rest will kind of, you know, immediately have the same thing happen to them. It doesn't, it doesn't work out that way, of course, but there's this kind of belief in that hierarchy um, that's operating there. They're also, I mean, they're also cheaper too. I mean, there's Philip Kwaku, who I talk about is, is in West Africa um, and he's there for like 50 years and they're paying him like 40 pounds a year. Whereas a white missionary before him, Thomas Thompson, was getting paid something like 70 pounds a year. And so they wow, wow. they paid them. They, it was just it was just kind of blatant racial discrimination <laughs> going on. Um, but they they paid them less, uh, significant, uh, significantly less. And then the other thing, this is the thing that I think was probably what were I'd say maybe the two things. The two things that struck me the most were in terms of justifying native missionaries were kind of the religious dimensions and then the racial dimensions. Um, the religious dimensions, they they often talked about 
kind of the expansion of the Atlantic world as like a like kind of a second moment in the history of gospelization or the history of Christian expansion. Like they looked often to the to these very early histories of the Christian church expanding in the Roman Empire by the hands of people like St. Paul and others, right? And they looked at this as like kind of a model for how um, Christian evangelization would unfold. And in those histories, they found that it was native peoples, you know, native peoples living in the cities or native peoples living in the countrysides who ended up spreading the gospel. It was, it was through Paul and his letters, but it wasn't just him alone, you know. And so they're they're relying a lot on kind of their scriptural history to understand how this is going to unfold. And their scriptural history is telling them that native peoples are going to be important to this process, um, which I, I – you know, as I as I was reading that, I was kind of I was struck by how often I found that in the missionary reports, this discussion of these early Christian histories. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. And then this the second thing was race. You know, I mean, um, and this is this is where it operated in a weird kind of way. So, you know, they would say something to the effect of, you know, when they're when they're training like African missionaries, they would say something to the effect of. Well, we're gonna we're gonna use these African missionaries because essentially we know that West Africa is a is kind of a white man's grave, right? Uh, in, in other words, their you know their bodies or their constitutions are particularly suited to do the difficult work of missionizing and of of, of evangelization in the harsh climate uh, of this region, which is the kind of the exact same like body theory rationale that was in place to justify transatlantic slavery, right? And it's the idea that their bodies are particularly suited for really hard work in difficult climates, you know? Um, so it's it's kind of weird that the same, that the same, you know, logic that would rationalize slavery, in some ways, that same logic was applied to missionaries as well, uh, the use of black missionaries uh, in Africa uh, and, and in South Carolina as well, too, also in pretty much any place where there's kind of hot um, and, and tr- somewhat tropical or, or quote unquote exotic climates. And for Indians, for Native Americans, actually, it's interesting because the same kind of logic was at work. There was this idea that, well, you know, first of all, English missionaries aren't going to want to go out to like the Senecas, you know, in Western New York because they're going to get, you know, they're going to get killed. Um, <laughs> they're not going to want to do that. And, um, you know, so it's it's really hard work and it's not, you know, a, you know, necessarily glorious work. Some might think it is, but it's it's not it's not a work that a lot of people would want to do, especially when you talk about Anglicans. A lot of them were based in the cities and the seaports and things like that. Um, but there was this idea that, hey, you know, Native Americans could do it and they're kind of particularly suited to it. In fact, you know, they, they can go out there and live the kind of difficult life of being in the wilderness and all that. There's all this kind of rhetoric about like wilderness and constitutions and bodies and things like that, and that they were particularly suited to do that. Um, so it, 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 what, what was interesting is I found there were a lot of in, in rereading a lot of the missionary literature, there were a lot of justifications that were kind of practical, right, in terms of like this is going to be how we can expand the gospel and how we can get, engage in evangelical activity. But there were also justifications that were more ideological. And those were the ones that I, I found were, were more interesting and probably more surprising, especially the religious and the racial ones. Right, right. No, I really enjoyed that introduction. I thought it set things up well. Now, you had mentioned the uh, the Puritans and the, the praying towns. That this, Oftentimes, these are depicted as kind of uh, an experiment didn't didn't work. But in Chapter 1, you really kind of, uh, like I say, revise that idea or challenge it at least somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, it's funny. I, I try, it's strange because somebody had asked me this question about, you know, conversion and success and I never, 
in the book, to, you know, to give it away for people who haven't read it, I never really come down one way or another <laughs> whether whether this is um, whether these strategies were eventually successful or not. Um, I my assumption, I guess my working assumption is that they were somewhat successful to the point where the people kept trying to do them kind of over and over and over again. Um, but they never had um, any kind of major successes. And the praying towns, as we know, have a very long and, and troubled history. And the thing that I was trying to do mostly with the praying towns was was really to kind of take John Elliott out of the picture um, because so much whenever we talk about the praying towns of the seventh of 17th century New England we always talk about you know Natick and John Elliott and his efforts and obviously he's a he's a major character who catalyzed them but one of the things that I would would I one of the things I was doing my early kind of periods of research as I had mentioned early on was just simply counting and trying to figure out how many of these people were out there and as it turned out, there were a ton of these people, you know, Native Americans who had gone to these praying towns who were active in, um, you know, saying kind of extemporaneous sermons, leading prayer groups, um, leading uh, kind of psalm singing or Christian instruction. I, I took I took kind of a wide um, definition or I employed a kind of a wide definition of missionaries to, to include not only people who were technically ordained, right, but also people who acted as missionaries. So, you know, school teachers who are trying to teach people to read so they can understand sacred scripture or um, people who were singers who had set the song, you know, set the uh, the the, uh, the tunes to the psalms and things like that. Um, people who participated in this these aspects of Christian life. And so the you know the goal of that that first chapter was really to just kind of talk about you know the Indian side of things what are what are kind of indigenous perspectives on these praying towns how are they operating in them how are they kind of struggling with um, ideas about conversion and how are the kind of the the most important ones and the biggest ones how are they kind of understanding that especially in light of the fact that these praying towns were, you know, they, they technically Indians weren't forced into them, but their socio-historical conditions, meaning increasing English colonization, disease, all these factors kind of led them into that. Um, so I kind of want to explore what it meant to them and, and how that, you know, and how that changed over time. And I was particularly actually struck by what was happening on Martha's Vineyard. David Silverman has written a great book. Um, uh, he published it a few years ago on, on Martha's Vineyard. But on Martha's Vineyard, there was a, a pretty large and sizable community of Christian Indians. And it's just kind of interesting to trace their history as well, because a lot of times we talk about Christianity as a kind of you know alien religion. But Christianity really gets introduced to the Martha's Vineyard Indians in the middle of the 17th century. And in my book, I'm still talking about them in the 1720s. And by that time, they had been there had been generations and generations of Christians uh, who are Wampanoags who had lived on Martha's Vineyard. And so to call it an alien religion for them doesn't really make a lot of sense because that was the that was the religion of of their most immediate ancestors. You know, so this is kind of an interesting um Kind of an interesting and pretty compelling story when you look at that island, uh, but yeah, in that in that chapter, I was really trying to map out a, a vision of the praying towns that kind of took John Elliot away from the picture uh, and and looked at it from the indigenous perspective to see um, the the various ways in which they kind of thought about the praying towns and about English missionary work, but also the kind of challenges that that they uh, that they found when they were living there. Kind of challenges were they finding? 
Well, there there was there was warfare. That's a big one. Um, I talk about I talk about King Philip's War, and that that's a huge one. Um, there's competition between Indians. There are um, I can talk about King Philip's War in a second, but there's uh, competition between Indians. There's um, uh, continued kind of land disputes uh, with with English um, colonists. Um, and there's also just kind of this idea of how to how to think about this, you know, this new religion and conceptualize this this new religion as they're starting to experience it. So, for example, um, the Sabbath day, like how would they, you know, the English Puritans had told them they have to honor the Sabbath day. And what does that actually mean? And how do they in their community enforce that? And so there were ministers, you know, Indian ministers who are trying to enforce the Sabbath day. But that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for a lot of a lot of Native Americans. Um, King Philip's War was was the biggest challenge, of course. And, you know, famously, Christian Indians get essentially put into concentration camps, essentially internment camps on Deer Island in Boston Harbor, which is a very, very difficult place for them to be. There's hundreds of people die there. Um, and I actually have a, a former student of mine who's now working on a project on the memorialization of, of Deer Island, uh, which is a really interesting project. Um, but but it, it put them in an incredibly difficult position because, you know, praying Indians were looked at by by Indians who had sided with King Philip as as suspect and as treasonous and as traitors. And the English never fully really trusted them. Right. I mean, they used them occasionally as scouts and as spies and things like that, but they never really fully trusted um, the praying Indians. And I tell a story about um, one group of Indians um, from what's now Lowell, Massachusetts. They basically just hightail it out of there. They they kind of cruise around in the woods in like, you know, New, the New Hampshire and Vermont, what's going to become New Hampshire and Vermont for a while, just kind of trying to get out of the uh, get out of the way of King Philip's War. And, um, you know, so there are a bunch of responses, but King Philip's War is absolutely devastating um, for for native missionaries on the mainland. But after the war, what's kind of interesting is down in like Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard, there's kind of a resurgence. And that that was something that surprised me as well, that there was this kind of growing um, resurgence of, of native Christian leadership in that space after the war. Whereas we usually talk about King Philip's War kind of destroys missionaries and missionary work in the uh, in the 17th century. There's this kind of like renaissance of it that's happening down in Mashpee and on Martha's Vineyard in the uh, in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. So I thought I thought that was pretty a pretty compelling story to tell as well. Yeah, I, I felt it was really sad to read about about that. On, on one side, it was very tragic. These poor people were kind of caught in between. But it, it also historically, I, I didn't realize. I, I guess I kind of thought Christian Indian equals English. And you show that's not exactly that's not yeah, at all what's happening. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and I, I that that shows. I mean, that kind of shows. I think that shows the limits of of how seriously many English people took conversion and. Uh, Indian conversion and Indian affiliation. And I think that's, I think it's a battle because I think what's happening is, I mean, after the war, we see that there's a, a, a debate among people about, all right, what to do now? You know, what are we going to do with these people? And they essentially decide to kind of corral them, you know, forgetting the ones on Martha's Vineyard, but the, they essentially decide to corral them in these essentially these reservation towns um, to try to keep an eye out on them. So the fact that they're – a lot of this has to do with kind of the writing about King Philip's War and the way in which they talk about it. Um, 
really famous accounts by people like Increase Mather and Mary Rowlandson uh, basically frame Indians as these like merciless savages. And, you know, there are a couple very small examples of like Indian compassion and humanity. But the general story of those post-war narratives is this, as you had said, like really tragic, <laughs> you know, terrible story that depicts Indians as um, kind of irredeemable and barbaric. And and that's really that's that's hugely problematic because missionaries, a lot of missionaries are obviously trying to fight back against that, because if that's the case, if you do say that these people are completely irredeemable, then that means that, you, you know, your missionary effort doesn't make any sense and shouldn't have any support. Um, so it kind of it, it grates against saying that grates against the very kind of act or the very um, being of being a missionary, you know. Right. No, that, and it's interesting. You, you So you've been talking about King Philip's War. What I find very interesting is you had the meeting of, I don't know if I say two kings, but two members of the royalty in, to start off chapter two. Yeah, yeah. That was that the, the shift to the Anglican. So I, I spent, you know, the first the first big chunk of the book talking about the Puritans and then kind of shift a little bit towards the Anglicans. And the Anglicans were just really, really interesting because they were much more. They seem to be much more hierarchical um, in terms of their treatment of of potential Indian converts and the ways in which they thought about missionary work. They had um, a, a, a prince from from the Yamasee Nation, a guy who they had called George, and they also kind of called at the same time the Yamasee Prince. They kind of hoped that he would be converted, and again there would be this kind of trickle down evangelism going on. And the same thing happened with. Um, with an Indian named uh, named Hendrick, who they essentially hired to work at um, one of their their Mohawk stations. But as I had said in the book, that's you know that that process doesn't really work because Indians are are not they don't necessarily have this kind of pyramidal authority structure. It's more based on kind of consensus, right? Uh, and so if it for them, you know, identifying with with Christian identity or taking on Christian rituals, they would do it if it made sense to them and if it worked for them. But they wouldn't necessarily do it just because their leader decided to do it. Right. Uh, and I think we find that this guy, Hendrick, who's working among the Mohawks, uh, there are some times when his mission is pretty successful and the Anglicans are feeding them books and he's got kids going to school and things are great. Uh, but then there are, you know, English missionaries there later on who are saying that this was a waste of time. Uh, it was ultimately unsuccessful. They haven't made the kind of gains that we were hoping that they would make. They're still engaging in warfare with people. Um, and so there's this kind of dual narrative going on here that's that's really problematic for them. Um, but the Anglicans were, yeah, the Anglicans had a very, it's, it's interesting because you know, Puritans tended to have a little bit more of a kind of bottom-up approach, kind of a community-based approach, whereas the Anglicans, they weren't as concerned about, you know, making praying towns or forcing them to civilize necessarily. I think they were more interested in the early years in in getting these elites, these elite figures, and trying to get them to convert. When they realize that that fails, that's when we start to see um, kind of more educational projects, right? Like um, I talk about the scheme uh, in Bermuda to try to get, you know, native children at a school to a school in Bermuda where they would, um, you know, become Christianized and then they would become sent out through the rest of the world. And there's this, there's this idea that maybe this, um, estate that, uh, Christopher Codrington left to the Anglicans in his will where he had 300 slaves, maybe that would be a good place to have a college. Um, the college of William and Mary has a kind of a, 
a short-lived, relatively short-lived college called Brafferton College, um, which Brafferton Hall is still part of the College of William & Mary, but it, that's not entirely successful either. Uh, and then that leads to kind of these educational efforts lead to um, what I the the program called the Charleston Negro School, which is this effort in the early 1740s to have slaves teach other slaves. So there's this whole, I think what we see is we see the Anglicans, you know, trying to use native missionaries and realizing the importance of them, but really struggling with that, uh, like how to actually do that. Which ones do you use? How do you actually form a plan that's going to be effective? And there's a tremendous amount of debate about that. And what was the, why were they so concerned about using, um, uh, native missionaries. I mean, you, you explain in your introduction all the reasons to use them. I mean, it sounds great to me. What would be the problem? What would be the danger? Well, I think that I think there are a couple of dangers. I mean, I think the the danger, the potential danger of using native missionaries, will is kind of the, um, you know the main concern is a kind of distillation of the word, <laughs> or you know missionaries who would not be. Um, very aware of or cognizant of or receptive to the kind of deeper theological complications of Christianity and particularly of Anglican Christianity, right? So there's, you know, you say some basic things like um, Christ is the Savior, Christ is the, the Redeemer, or things like that. But then when you start talking like original sin, Native Americans don't really have an idea about original sin or, or a sense of original sin. So, you know, they would say, OK, you're telling me that I the moment I am born, the moment that I'm a little child, I am a bad person. That makes no sense to them, you know. <laughs> so so the the question, the the drawback to Native missionaries is this fundamental question of to what extent do they actually understand what they're trying to tell them? Um, what they, you know, what these various denominations are trying to tell them. And I actually found it was kind of one of the interesting things I found is that um, there is there is some kind of collaboration with them, especially among Protestants, because Protestants, you know, they're part of this like Protestant international, right? They, they, uh, they despise the Catholics. They hated, you know, they really, they hate, that was the one thing they could agree on, right? They, they despised the Catholics. They hated the Catholics. Anything that the Popish Catholics were doing was wrong. They were an army of army of Satan and all that. Um, And, and it's interesting, you know, at one point Cotton Mather writes, uh, letters to some of his supporters, and he's he's urging Anglicans to get more involved in New York in order to kind of stem the tide. Now, here's Cotton Mather saying Anglicans should be more active in engaging in missionary work, um, even as at the same time he was saying that they they too are kind of stinking and perfidious people. So um, it's I guess to kind of get back to your question, I think the the major concern is this kind of like a distillation or a, or kind of a perversion of. Of Christianity that they're that they're concerned about, um, and yet at the same time, there are organizations, there are missionary organizations like the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, which is founded in 1701. It's the main Anglican organization, often called the SPG, and they've got you know hundreds and hundreds of backers. They publish these reports every year. They've got about 300 missionaries who are working in the, um, you know, kind of in the Atlantic world, but a lot of them are working in, in cities and in towns, but it's a huge infrastructure, right? And to, to kind of just stop because of the concern that some native peoples might not fully understand the complexities of the gospel didn't make a lot of sense to them. Um, and so that's why they, they did a lot of things like distributing books and starting schools and stuff like that. So they could try to get ahead of that concern. Well, 
one thing you, you talked about distributing books. One thing I found fascinating was on on page sixty five how you talk about the Elliott Bible and the way that um, we could actually use that Bible to see what American Indians uh, thought and how they understood the religion. So I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, that was that was actually kind of a chance find. That, that was um, I've during the during the process of all this research, I was um, I had fellowships at a, a lot of different places in New England and down in um, Pennsylvania, and I was very lucky to, to see a lot of different things. And um, one of the interesting things that I found is that, you know, I found a lot of materials in Pennsylvania that, you know, were originally in New England. I found a lot of materials that were originally in, you know, Pennsylvania that made their way to New England. And so I, it's kind of interesting that I, I would have expected to find some of these things in Boston, but I found them in Philadelphia. One of them, uh, the library company of Philadelphia, they had they had an Indian Bible. Um, and you can look in the, in the marginalia and you can kind of um, look at and, and see kind of how they're thinking about and how they're talking about uh, their own kind of religious experiences. And I was really fascinated by the fact that it vacillates between kind of like a lot of it is like kind of self-help, like encouraging type statements, you know, read this Bible, do well. But then there's also this kind of like um, this narrative of like the poor Indian, you know, and it's it's really hard to tear apart whether it's a kind of racialized poor Indian type of narrative or is it a you're a sinner, you know, Puritan Protestant theology type of narrative, like you're a wicked sinner, you know, and I think it's a little bit of both. But a lot of the narratives are a lot of the the, the marginal statements kind of talk about, you know, read, read this book. You're a sinner. You're you know, you're a poor man. But, you know, you can maybe, you know, come to some kind of understanding if you read this book more carefully. And so for them, you know, texts became they were an oral culture. But I think for them, texts became pretty important for some of these ministers in the early 18th century. Yeah, I I love that. I wish I had some documents like that to to work with. Um, that that would really be fun. Yeah, they're they're very they're very rare, and I I found there were a couple more that I had found later on that I didn't end up working in there. But I wish I had that. I, you know, of course that happens all the time, right? You publish something and then you find this kind of you know load of of amazing materials. Um, I found a couple other things, and I would have I would have expanded that that part because. It's it's very hard, you know, doing this research in 17th, early 18th century America. It's very hard to try to get into the mindset of some of these people. And that's, you know, these 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 marginal notes, this marginalia is one of the ways to try to do that. And you had mentioned a bit ago about this Charleston Negro School. So I wonder. um, So your your book is supposed to not just on these Native Americans. It was also looking at people of African descent. You pick up with that story in in chapter three. Right, right. Yeah, that was um, that was I mean, that was kind of a (laughs) that was a little bit of a bone of contention with (laughs) with some of the some of the people who I was kind of talking talking to about this book in the earlier stages, because, you know, some people were saying, well, you know, it should just be a history of Native Americans or it should just be African-Americans. But one of the things that I found is that they're for, for missionaries, at least they're talking about them in the, in the same way. And a lot of this is kind of like conflating their racial identities and racial ideas and stuff like that. But, um, but a lot of it really is this kind of idea that, um, that there are these non-Christians out there and that it's part of their, their mission to kind of, you know, sp- you know, spread the gospel. Right. However, however, right or wrong, that kind of, you know, uh, assumption is. And so I decided because, because the missionaries who I was studying initially, um, because they, the, the ones who were kind of running the show, the ones who are funding it, the ones who are producing these publications, the ones who are organizing it, because they're writing about them kind of in the same breath, 
Indians and Africans. Thomas Bray, a very famous Anglican, actually uses the phrase African Indians to talk about the indigenous peoples of Africa, um, which is a, such a fast, I mean, for me, it's such an interesting phrase. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about, you know, I wanted to talk about Africans and, and you know, and black slaves and things like that. And this school that develops, which they had called the Charleston Negro Schools, it's in place from the early 1740s to the early 1760s. And it's just a it's a fascinating story. So, you know, some a lot of people who have studied Anglicans have written about this, but they haven't put it in a larger context of kind of using black missionaries. And what's particularly interesting about it is that the two teachers in the school were slaves. Right. Um, and that was their that was their job was to essentially run the schools and to teach, you know, a couple dozen students uh, every year. Some of the basic principles of Christianity, try to teach them to read and to write, try to give them you know, basic tools to understand um, Christianity and specific, specifically Anglican Christianity. And I talked a bit in that in that section about kind of how this fit into larger debates about what was going on in South Carolina, because it's founded just a couple years after the Stonewall Rebellion. And so it's very much, you know, I, I, I say that it's very much kind of an, an answer to the question of what to do about slaves and about the question of authority and things like that. And it's very much wrapped into concerns about Christian liberty and issues like that. But the Anglicans are trying to say that, no, actually, if, if you get converted to Christianity, it's not going to make you want to assert your independence and, and kind of go for liberty and, and get your freedom. But it's going to make you a better slave because you're going to realize that you're subservient to your master and all this other type of, you know, all these other types of kind of obedience metaphors and things like that. Um, and Travis Glasson has has written a fantastic book called Mastering Christianity, which is all about the Anglicans. And he does, uh, admittedly, does a much better job with that than I do because he's his main concern is really about the Anglicans' relationship with slavery throughout their history in the, you know, in the 18th century. So it's, for those of you who are interested, for those listening who are interested, it's a, it's a fantastic book and um, it's very well researched. But the Charleston Negro School is just kind of one, one piece of this puzzle. Uh, and and it's interesting, too, because they, you know, they they treat them, the Anglicans treat them like slaves. I mean, they they have a they have a bill of sale. They purchase these guys when one of them can't do the job. They send them off to the Caribbean. They send they send them to Barbados um, to work on a sugar plantation. Um, you know, so they're getting rid of kind of ineffective or recalcitrant slaves. And so it's really not like him. <laughs> pardon me. I mean, right. I mean, I mean, they must really not like that guy. I mean, sugar plantation. Yeah. I mean, it's like, what, a three, five year lifespan if you do that kind of yeah, work? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's terribly low. Yeah, it's essentially a death sentence. Exactly. And and they um, and they talked about this. This is a guy named Andrew, a slave named Andrew. They talked about him as having not as good of a capacity as as the other slave. Um, but you're right. I mean, essentially, that's tantamount to sending him away to his death. Uh, and and we don't really know what happens to him afterwards, and we're not we're not really sure. Um, but but it's just a it's a it's a very for me I just thought it was a very strange reaction because here you have you know post seventeen thirty nine there's a Stono rebellion it's a big slave rebellion in South Carolina everybody's on edge, and Anglicans say what we what we need is more learning you know more intelligent slaves we need more of this it, you know, it's for for people. For many people, that's the exact opposite of what they wanted to hear. But for the Anglicans, they thought, no, this was this was the, the slaves themselves would be the best way to preach the gospel. And in fact, now was the best time to do it right after the Stono Rebellion. Um, 
so it was, a, it was a really kind of interesting thing to look at and put in that in that context. And then, of course, the Moravians, who are absolutely fascinating, and there's been so much more study on them. The Moravians are also um, kind of, uh, you know, kind of getting involved in the in the Caribbean in the 1730s and the 1740s. And they're also highly problematic as well um, because they have, you know, separate meetings for men and women. They're giving uh, black slaves uh, authority to uh, to speak and to preach among their own groups. They're they're successful. I mean, that's the, so the Moravians are actually really successful um, in, in preaching the gospel. And they kind of make what, what one scholar calls a devil's bargain with with the Caribbean planners. They basically say, yeah, we're not going to. We're not going to talk about Christian liberation theology. We're not going to talk about freedom. We're not going to talk about, you know, releasing you from the bondage of slavery. We're going to talk about, you know, the sacrifices that Christ made for humanity and all this other stuff. But we're going to really downplay, um, you know, the role that uh, the, the, the role of slavery in human life. And so they're really I mean, they're also a really kind of fascinating story. And similar to the way that I was kind of dealing with the Charleston Negro School, um, Kind of in light of the work of Travis Glass, and there have been a lot of people like um, John Sensbach and, and Aaron Fogelman who have written about uh, Moravians in the Caribbean. So I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to kind of tread too much, uh, step too much on their toes. But I did think it was a really important story because the Moravians, they're you know, they're a radical, pretty strange, like German sect that's all over the place. I mean, they're in Greenland, they're in Connecticut, New York, South Carolina. They're in the Danish Caribbean. They're in, you know, they're in Suriname. They're, you know, they're all over the place. But what's interesting about them is that even though they're not English, and my book is about the British Atlantic world, they're not British, but British people are paying attention to them, right? Um, Charles Wesley, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're talking to them. They're, they're paying attention to them. Um, I've, you know, I have a, a great quote from Ezra Stiles, who's you know, a Congregationalist minister, one of the guys who was involved in this Newport project. And uh, he's reading the history of the Moravian mission to Greenland, and he's, he's reading it and is saying – you know, I think we messed up. He's saying, I think the Moravians might have it right. What the Moravians do is they go in, they're kind of low impact missionaries. That's a, a phrase from uh, Rachel Wheeler. Um, but they're they're low impact missionaries. They kind of go in, they do their thing. They don't assume that civilization has to come first. They don't build praying towns. They don't try to, you know, cut, make, make everybody, you know, cut their hair or like engage in all these, you know, new, newfangled, you know, activities. They bring them into a community, right? Um, and they expose them to their preaching and they just do that. And Ezra Stiles is, is writing to, you know, one of his friends saying, maybe that's the way to do it, right? Maybe the whole model of trying to civilize them and Christianize them at the same time is wrong. And so, the point being is that, you know, Moravians are outside, kind of outside the bounds in some ways of the, of the British Atlantic, but people are very much paying attention to them. No, I, I the more I learn about the Moravians, the more I, I want to learn because they're such an interesting group. Yes. Yeah. And so you've talked about the Anglicans and you've talked about the Moravians there. I wonder if you could the, the title of the chapter is Slave Preachers and Indian Separatism. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that, that second part. Yeah, yeah. There was um there was this is kind of like the this chapter that I have here, it's kind of like the hodgepodge chapter. It's like, you know, I could have just titled it, you know, things happening in the middle of the eighteenth century <laughs> related to things that I'm interested in. Um and I, I had a you know, I had a lot of choices in terms of what I wanted to talk about, but I I wanted to try to kind of triangulate this by looking at 
you know, the Charleston Negro School, the, the Moravian missions, and then look a little bit at Indian separatism. And I, I focused on um, a Narragansett preacher, a guy named Samuel Niles. Uh, and um, Samuel Niles is a, was a it was an absolutely fascinating guy because he basically became like the most powerful Narragansett religious figure uh, in the middle of the 18th century. And he was, you know, uh, a Protestant and he was a preacher and he was a major religious figure and he was a community leader and he could not read. <laughs> and it was just imagine a Protestant who couldn't read, you know, that, you know, you go back to the early years of, of uh, the Protestant Reformation, the centrality of the vernacular and the importance of of, uh, of of language and of written texts to understand your own salvation. And and he couldn't read. You know, and I just thought he was a really compelling figure because he relied upon his own dreams and his own visions, which was a traditionally Native American source of revelation. So he's he's such a fascinating figure because he represents kind of the fusion of these various like cosmologies and these various ideas. But he ends up going off in a different direction. This fascinating guy named Samuel Niles, and um, he uh, he was essentially illiterate and he essentially um, kind of drew from his own dreams and his own visions. Uh, and, and he was still kind of, you know, citing, you know, the figure of Christ and things like that, but he was very much kind of fusing Native American cosmology and Native American ideas and rituals with a kind of, um, kind of an evangelical uh, Christianity, a very interesting figure. And the authorities, kind of the local authorities who in the early years had some kind of an alliance with him and, and um, were trying to work with him, eventually you know, broke off from him. And even some other Indian groups broke off from him as well. And you see this kind of splintering. What you ended up seeing is you see throughout Narragans the Narragansett community and other Indian communities, this kind of breaking away or this indigenization uh, of their their own Christian denominations where, you know, for people like Samuel Niles, they don't want to work underneath the authority of, of English authorities anymore. Right. Uh, and so they kind of go off and do their own thing. So I just I thought he was a really fascinating character. Um to discuss simply because he's a Protestant and he's, you know, the, the power of literacy is obviously very important, but he's a Protestant who can't read. Um, but that didn't bother him. Uh, and, and it obviously in, in accounts and later accounts of him, people, various people had met him and talked to him. They were always impressed with him. You know, a lot of people heard about the fact that he couldn't read and that he was this Narragansett minister. But a lot of people um, who met him were impressed with his scriptural knowledge. And so I think in some ways that that scriptural knowledge becomes part of his own oral tradition and his own kind of, um, you know, evangelical persona that he was trying to trying to create there in the Narragansett region. So it's interesting. You've hit on this issue of how even though you have people who are all now, Protestant, they're disagreeing about what their faith means. And one thing I thought interesting was how in chapter four, you start that off with another disagreement between two very different Protestants uh, who are both Anglicans, I believe. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The chapter four is uh, that was <laughs> that was probably like the, the chapter that I, I liked the most or the chapter that I enjoyed writing the most because it's probably the one that has uh, the, the richest amount of, of resources. This is about a guy named Philip Kwaku. Um, who is a uh, who's an Anglican, an African, uh, who who basically was um, sent from his home uh, in Cape Coast Castle up to London to become a uh, an ordained Anglican uh, missionary, and ends up coming back 
in February of 1766. And he's there for 50 years. I mean, he dies in 1816. And he writes, you know, dozens and dozens of letters to the SPG and to a bunch of other friends throughout the Atlantic world and others. But one of these letters that he writes is the one that you're referring to at the beginning, where he's, he's writing to a friend of his in, uh, in Newport, or, or not New, Newport, Newburyport in, uh, in Massachusetts. And, you know, his friend in Newburyport is basically talking about this on the eve of the revolution. And he's saying, you know, we are under the oppression and tyranny of the British government. We're fast verging towards slavery and yada, yada, yada. And he's using this kind of, you know, very tired use of, of this, you know, slavery and slavery rhetoric to talk about liberties. And and this guy, Philip Kwaku, who's an African, uh, who's in the middle of the slave trade there at Cape Coast Castle, says, well, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> um, you guys are the ones who are enslaving people. You know, you, you guys are the ones who are doing that. And he kind of turns it on its head. And um, and it's just a really interesting it's a very interesting and compelling story because he was half of his salary was paid by the Anglicans, by the SPG. But the other half was paid by the company of merchants trading in Africa, uh, which is basically the slave traders who ran Cape Coast Castle. And he was there to be a chaplain to these guys, to the slave traders and the merchants and the captains and all these other guys. Um, but he was also there to be a missionary to the Africans, to his own community that he that he came from. And so the entire his entire history is this this incredibly um, interesting and and um, and highly problematic and troubling history of um, of somebody who's kind of coming to grips with his identity of being a black among blacks, being a you know an, an African among Africans, but being entirely different from them in a lot of ways. Uh, so he he faces a lot of challenges, and it's it's particularly tragic because by the end of the, his life, he's completely disillusioned. I mean, he really he thinks that the SPG abandoned him. Um, he thinks that he doesn't get the respect that he deserves. He believes that the uh, the slave traders were terrible people, which I would probably agree with. Um, he, uh, you know, he he thinks that they don't care that much about religion, which is also true. Um, he thinks that the Africans are ignoring him, and that's true as well. Uh, so he's, you know, he's a guy who's there's a tremendous amount of kind of. Um, you know, hope heaped upon him when he first arrives there in, in February of 1766. But it's a really, it's a very disillusioning experience. Um, I've had, you know, I've, I've had friends and colleagues who I've, I've talked to, and I remember one of them saying, well, you know, I'm writing about slavery and war and dispossession. And one of them was saying, yeah, that's kind of a, at least your story is kind of a, a good story or more of a feel good story, you know, cultural encounters and, you know, cultural understanding and things like that. And I said, yeah, I mean, to, <laughs> to some extent, to some extent it is. And, you you know, these people are cultural brokers and they're trying to find a way. But it's also really lonely in the middle. Uh, and I and I write about that in chapter four. And the same thing actually is true uh, in the next chapter, chapter five for the Indians, for Indians. I talk about Indians who leave um, New England and they go to to preach the gospel among um, among the Iroquois Indians, specifically the Mohawks and the Senecas. And it is really troubling for them. It's very, very hard because they're facing not only people who don't necessarily might not necessarily be all that interested in hearing the Christian message, but they're also facing people who are culturally quite different from them because the people in New England are Algonquian peoples and the people in New York are Iroquoian peoples. They speak different languages. They have 
um, you know, some similar, some basic kind of similar ideas, but there's also kind of a long history of, of warfare and diplomacy and competition with them. So they come in as outsiders, right? Um, trying to teach the Iroquois, who are a very powerful and, and, and proud group of people, trying to tell them what to do, uh, which creates a lot of, you know, a lot of tensions and problems. Uh, so, so the, you know, the answer to that point about, you know, well, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's not necessarily always a feel good story and it's not always successful. Um, but it's something that does very much raise the eyebrows and the interests of missionaries throughout the world. Um, and not just, actually, I should say, not only just missionaries, um, you know, in the Americas, but also in Europe as well. And even beyond, people are trading missionary texts um, and, and letters and things like that to missions, mission sites in Asia. And there are sites in Asia that are in conversation with mission sites in the Americas, even in the early 18th century. So these stories really are, are stories that have a tremendous amount of kind of cultural capital for missionary work. Uh, but they're also pretty, you know, they're also pretty problematic stories as well. I found it. Um, yeah, I'm just curious. Do, do you know why the SPG would send, um, I mean, a, a black African to be a chaplain to a slave <laughs> trading port? I mean, I was yeah. really. Uh, did they have an ulterior motive, or were they? I mean, what were they thinking? So, in a sense, it's actually a lot of this has to do with the um, the complicity of Africans in the slave trade. Um, Africans were actively, coastal Africans were actively involved in the slave trade. It was, um, and Randy Sparks is, Randy Sparks and John Thornton have both done really great work on this, um, you know, and among others. But um, it was, you know, the coastal Africans living in that region who allowed the British to essentially inhabit Cape Coast Castle and have that castle there. And it was actually, it was, it was um, one of Philip Kwaku's family members, a guy named Kujo Kabashir, who was kind of the main political and economic figure in Cape Coast, in the Cape Coast region, or at Cape Coast. And it was him who sent Kwaku. So it was, I think it was part of this kind of effort to engage in cultural diplomacy, where a lot of times we would see both English and Africans uh, as part of the slave trade, kind of taking each other's children as hostages, um, but as as like friendly hostages, it, I mean, sometimes it's not friendly hostages, you know, sometimes literally in the way that we think of hostages. But sometimes there were like um, they were essentially like um, like, you know, gifts or, or or kind of momentary tributes or things that you would use to to show the trust and um, the faith that you had in a trading partner. And I think part of it, you know, the, the Anglicans were interested in doing this because. For the Anglicans, they had a guy who was coming from a family that was involved with the slave trade. Uh, and so maybe they thought that he wouldn't be too opposed to it. Eventually, he was opposed to it. But it's interesting. In, in his letters, he's very much opposed to the slave trade. And he talks very negatively about slavery. But there's also evidence, and Travis Glasson has found this too, but there's also evidence to suggest that he actually owned a slave. Um and that he himself kind of benefited from it and took part in it. So it's a really complicated story. But yeah, I think that I think the Anglicans, I think the fact that they were getting somebody from a family of slave traders, that made them assume that this guy wasn't going to say too much about it. And, and, and they were wrong. He never published an abolitionist tract. He, he wasn't he wasn't like Equiano or anything like that. Um, but. You know, but he was a pretty well-known, you know, inter international. I wouldn't say he was a celebrity, but he was a pretty well-known international figure who um, had epistolary ties with with people uh, beyond Africa and beyond London. And as you had mentioned, 
you know, when you invoke the uh, the introductory part of that chapter, um, all the way across into uh, into Massachusetts and into Rhode Island as well. Mentioned earlier that some people kind of questioned this idea of linking together uh, people like um, um, Philip Kwakwe, uh, yeah, um, and then and then. Um, American Indian or Native Americans. Right. And in chapter six, though, you show the link. Yeah. So that was that was what was really, really interesting about chapter six. So the chapter six is the one about John Kwame and Bristol Yama, which is the these are the two guys that really drew me to this project in the first place. So it's kind of a fitting way for it to 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 stop, you know, or the fitting way to kind of end the, the book project. But um, the two things that I really wanted to show in that chapter were first kind of the the um, the agency of the of the Africans who were involved, because the way that we usually talk about that particular mission and a couple of people have written about it, but not a lot. Um, the way that we usually talk about that mission is that it's kind of a, a mission that was designed by two white ministers in Newport a guy named Ezra Stiles and a guy named Samuel Hopkins. And it was basically their baby. It was their plan. um, And they were the ones who were in charge. And that's true to some extent because they were the ones who were kind of involved in the fundraising and creating a kind of evangelical network around it and the connections and all that. But when I started to go back and read the diary entries and the manuscripts and the letters, there were always these phrases where they would say something like, you know, John approached me to talk about this mission. And then Samuel, you know, Samuel Hopkins would say, um, they approached me first. They came to me expressing a desire to engage in this mission. And I just, I saw one instance of that. And then I started finding more and more of it, that they were the ones who initiated the mission, that it wasn't something that was imposed upon them. And so that was one of the first things, or that was kind of one of the main things I wanted to do in that chapter. But then the second thing was to place it, as you had said, in the context of of Native American missionary work and Native American missionary efforts. And so I talk about it from the perspective of both Ezra Stiles and Samuel Hopkins. You know, how are they approaching this mission, given their understanding of, of Indian missions? But also in the context of what I had talked about in chapter five, which was this effort, this effort to use Algonquian Indians to preach the gospel to Iroquois Indians in New York. This was a mission that was spearheaded by a guy named Eliezer Wheelock, and his most famous student was a guy named Samson Ockham. Uh, and and Ockham is by far the most famous native missionary uh, out there. I talk about him a good deal in the book, but I but there's also there's so much about him. Like literary scholars and historians have studied him. You could do you could teach literally an entire class, a, a college level seminar on Samson Ockham. There's so much about him, and I was trying to avoid what I called the black hole of Samson Ockham. I didn't, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't I didn't want to go in and then get lost. So I I, I dealt with him sparingly where I where I kind of. Needed Needed to, but I didn't want to have an entire thing about him because so much has been written on him. But he does this huge, like British Isles transatlantic tour to raise money for a college for Elias or Wheelock because they want to, you know, they want to take it to the next level. They've got a school in Connecticut that's churning out some of these native evangelists. They're going to start a college, right? So he raises about 12,000 pounds, brings it back, you know, gets donations, uh, brings it back to Elias or Wheelock. They build the college, which is now called Dartmouth College. Um, you know, they build the college, and at the same time, Wheelock backs out, and Wheelock says, eh, "I'm having second thoughts about using Indian missionaries." 
Right. It's it's not a good idea. It's not going to work out. We you know uh, we experimented with it. It's it's you know and and he told and you know people throughout the Atlantic world just you know they they freaked out because they gave Sam Samaka money. Who's the best student? That's why they sent this guy. Right. I mean he's like he's like the Equiano of Native Americans. He's a transatlantic celebrity. He's he's very good in front of a crowd. He's very compelling. Um, and they're like, we just, you know, we just gave you all this money for an Indian college and it's not going to be an Indian college. And so there's a huge backlash against Wheelock. So when Ezra Stiles and Samuel Hopkins engage in this missionary program, which, you know, happens like two years after the founding of Dartmouth, they're writing in their publications, you know, we, we will tell you where the money is going. We will make sure that you know that this money is going towards this effort. And this is an interdenominational effort. We're getting a lot of support for it. And they're, they're writing, not explicitly, but very much implicitly, they're writing about it as a kind of, as, as a way to answer um, Wheelock's rejection of native missionaries, right? But but doing it by using African missionaries, but they're they're not they're not at all in agreement with Wheelock about the failure of of native missionaries. In fact, they're they're saying let's let's up the game a little bit, let's up the ante, and let's send some to Africa, right? Um, which is which for me was a was a really kind of interesting find. So yeah, so I I, I think that you know studying them in tandem. I didn't want to kind of flatten or conflate the differences between them. But I think at the same time, for missionaries who are operating in the 18th century, the 17th and 18th centuries, um, the connections are there. And we see that in the way in which they try to raise funds for missionary work and also in the ways of just kind of putting them in, in similar kinds of, kinds of conversations. Makes sense. Let's let's immerse ourselves in their world where they're going to see these connections rather than making an, an artificial division. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah continue this connection into the conclusion right yeah so in the in the conclusion i um there's the conclusion's interesting because when i when i first was thinking about revising this and and you know turning this into a book you know it was a dissertation that got turned into a book i always i i always thought that i was going to write another chapter and that it was going to be on the baptists and the methodists and you know, this migration of peoples out of, you know, Virginia and the Carolinas and into New York and then Nova Scotia and then Sierra Leone and the use of native missionaries there and all these other things. And a couple of things happened in the meantime. The first is that um, Cassandra Pybus published a book called Epic Journeys of Freedom, which is um, a very, you know, well-respected and well-known book. She's a big time uh, Australian scholar. And the book is basically about all the, all the characters that I would have talked about. So it's Ah. (laughs) it's an entire book, uh, which is what my chapter would have been. So I decided not to do it. And then at the same time, Harvard, I think I had maybe 125,000 words and Harvard wanted, you know, 110,000 or something. So I I wasn't going to add more detail, but in that, in that conclusion, you get kind of a small, just a little bit of a glimpse of what I would have talked about, which is to look at the various ways in which after the American revolution, um, these, this missionary work is kind of um, changing or coming to fruition or, or, uh, or evolving. So I talk about the, um, you know, Sierra Leone, the attempts uh, to create colonies in Sierra Leone, and also the ways in which letters from Indian Christians uh, among the Oneidas at a community called Brothertown, they're writing to people in Sierra Leone, they're writing to Africans and talking to them about their experiences and trying to forge this kind of, you know, kind of a shared imagined community, I guess you could say, uh, you know, people who are, are non-white Christian leaders of their own communities. And at the same time, we have Baptists and Methodists 
um, really taking off in Virginia and traveling itinerant circles uh, in Pennsylvania and all throughout the Mid-Atlantic. And so I talk a little bit about that. And here's really where there's a lot of other really excellent work on those issues. So I, I try not to step on those to step on those toes, you know, too much. But I was trying in some ways to kind of look forward a little bit to the British missions and the histories of the British missions that really inspired me to write this book to say that later on, after a while, what you're going to see is you're going to see more and more um, native evangelists emerging in among Indian communities in New York. You're going to see it among the Baptists and Methodists in the South and in the Mid-Atlantic. You're going to see, you know, them emerge as leaders uh, in Sierra Leone. In fact, you know, when they when when African slaves, African-American slaves leave the Americas and, and go from Virginia to New York and Halifax and then Sierra Leone, you know, they, they think about it very much as an exodus. And one of their most charismatic and powerful leaders is a guy who calls himself Moses. Uh, so they're very much kind of writing their own history into the history of uh, sacred scripture, you know. Um, and so I wanted to talk, kind of talk about that and look forward a little bit to it. And in some ways, what, what I was hoping to do, one of the things I was trying to do with Native Apostles was to kind of write, uh, in some ways, a prehistory of these these later developments and these later missions so that we have a better understanding of the role of Native preachers overall. Because we've, we've got some really great books on like a Moravian. There's a great book by John Sunspock on a Moravian woman. There's, as I said, a ton of stuff on Samson Ockham, but we never really understood how this kind of fit into a whole, right? Or fit into a larger, uh, a larger pattern of using native missionaries. And that was the main goal I had in trying to, in trying to write this book. Well, I think you really uh, accomplished that goal very well. well thank you. So um, I enjoyed this and I, I hope that uh, many of our readers will pick up and read this book. Now, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I'd, I'd like to take up just a little bit more and ask you our traditional question on New Books Network. What are you working on now? Yeah, um, I'm glad. I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm working just very I'll be very brief with this one. So I'm working on my my dissertation, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is not 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 something that a lot of you know associate professors would say. But um, I'm working on what was my dissertation, um, my my dissertation project on Newport. Um, in the uh, in the 18th century, kind of the history of the intersections between slavery, race, and religion uh, in Newport in the 18th century. Um, it's a really interesting place because it's very religiously diverse. It's very much connected to transatlantic economic exchanges, and it, ha- it has a really high population of uh, of Africans, up to 20 percent, uh, for New England. Um, you know, that's not high for the Caribbean or for the Carolinas, but. For New England, that's a that's a pretty substantial number. Um, so there, are, you know, there are thousands of people living there, and so that's that's what I'm trying to do now, and that's what I'm going to hopefully, you know, work on over the course of the summer. But my more immediate project is I'm actually doing an article right now on missionary connections with India. I had mentioned this earlier, and this is something that didn't, unfortunately, I had to cut it from the book because it didn't exactly fit. But in the early 18th century, there are the the same missionaries who I'm talking about, the white missionaries who I'm talking about in in the book. They're very much involved in and interested in um, evangelical work, Protestant evangelical work that was happening in India. And one of my goals in this article is to try to kind of trace the rise and fall of that network over the course of, you know, the first, uh, you know, the first few years of the 18th century. Um, so it's really kind of a kind of a very interesting story because it moves me well beyond the scope of the Atlantic and into um, into talking about Indians in India rather than just, you know, Indians in, in native North America, which is which is, uh, you know, kind of exciting and daunting at the same time, because. 
because I have to, you know, master a whole new literature. But um, but as you had said about the connection between Africans and Native Americans, this is something that they're talking about. And so it's something that I wanted to kind of interrogate and, and take seriously and see where it see where it led me. You know? I, I have to say, I like the direction you're moving, because if you keep coming, you'll eventually get to Korea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Keep going east. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then eventually I'll eventually I'll get there. Yeah. Then I have to master a whole new literature all over again and I'll have to be reading your work. So I look forward <laughs> to that very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a, a lot of great projects. So um, I just want to wish you luck on those. And thank you for being on our show. I really enjoyed talking to you. And I hope our, our well, I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it, too. Great. Well, thank you very much, Franklin. Hello, this is Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University and host of New Books in Christian Studies. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll be able to listen again soon.